thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. The Bible reading tonight comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Thanks, Sam, and good evening. Uh, It's uh, good to see you here tonight. It's been a great night, hasn't it? Uh, An opportunity to worship together. Thanks for uh, Dave and the team doing a bit of extra work uh, and uh, kind of doing something special for us. Uh, And uh, to celebrate communion together is always a good thing. And there's dinner to come, uh, which is fantastic as well. As uh, Pete said earlier, uh, we want to revisit briefly our theme for the year about going deeper. And uh, if you remember what we began to talk about earlier in the year, one of the things that I drew your attention to is that when the Bible talks about deep roots, uh, it's not so concerned with stability. We often think about, you know, a tree with deep roots as being a stable tree, as one that can kind of handle the southerly buster that blows up the coast and blows everything over, and, and there's the tree still standing. But in Scripture, when deep roots are talked about, it's usually in association with fruitfulness. So a tree that has deep roots is a tree that is going to be fruitful because it can access the water and all the nutrients and whatnot that trees need. Uh, And uh, this aspect of fruitfulness is what I want to kind of focus on this evening as we have a look at this little parable that Jesus tells in Luke's account. Uh, We're a a fairly results-oriented culture, are we not? Uh, We like to see results for things. Uh, And at one level, we kind of get this parable really quickly, don't we? Uh, We get the idea that if there's no results, if there's no fruit, then there's really no future. And that's true for just about anything. Uh, So for those of you who are studying, you know, you work really hard, uh, at least you uh, try to work very hard, and if you get the results, then that's great. If you don't get the results, then that means that perhaps you need to rethink what you want to do with your life. Uh, If you have a portfolio and uh, you've been putting money into it and whatnot, and after three years you haven't made any sort of dividends at all, there's been no profit, it's been kind of just mediocre to poor, well, you're probably going to pull your money out and do something different. Uh, In the world of sport, if a coach uh, manages to lose for three years in a row, bye-bye. We're results focused, aren't we? And in every single aspect of our lives, whether it's work and how we expect, you know, a raise or a promotion, uh, whether it's in sport or in our study or in our finances and investments, we expect results. And so this parable makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? Here's a fellow who has been looking for a return in his investment, has gotten none, and basically says, cut the whole thing down. Uh, let's cut our losses and start again, shall we say. And we kind of, that makes sense for us. Now, in this context, Jesus is talking about the judgment upon barren disciples, disciples of his who do not bear fruit. And at one level, it's perfectly appropriate that Jesus would use the symbol and the image of a fig tree. Uh, I did uh, a little bit of uh, kind of study over the week on fig trees and uh, where they show up in Scripture, and they're actually quite common. But they actually, surprisingly, are very common in passages about judgment. 
Uh, so uh, early fig fruit, the figs as they kind of come off the tree in, in, the, in the ancient world it seemed, you just took it and you ate it. You just devoured it right away. You didn't store it. You didn't make it into cakes. You just ate it. And that became a symbol of judgment, that the judgment would come quickly. Just as people see the fruit, grab it and devour it, so will your glory be devoured, the Lord says. Uh, in other places, it's the shriveled figs that kind of at the end of the season that get blown off the, the leaves and the stars will fall like shriveled figs or figs that are so bad they can't be eaten is how the people of Israel are described. Jesus actually uses a fig tree uh, to uh, condemn the temple. He's going to the temple and he sees a fig tree and he goes to see if there's any fruit on it. There's none. And he curses the fig tree. Uh, and uh, goes on to the temple uh, where he ends up having some confrontation with the religious leaders. He comes back out of the city and the fig tree has itself shriveled. Uh, and most scholars agree that while Jesus did literally curse the fig tree, that it's a symbol of what was going on with the temple. That what Jesus is essentially saying is the fig tree looked fantastic but had no fruit and therefore it's been cursed. The temple looks fantastic, has no fruit, therefore its time has passed as well. This is, shall we say, a symbol of judgment. And it makes perfect sense in the context. In the previous verses in chapter 13, Jesus twice says, unless you repent, you will all perish. This is the context. But it's not just about a judgment that makes the choice of a fig tree so significant. Again, as I said, I did a little bit of reading into fig trees. They're kind of hip right now. You know, getting figs on something is very cool. Fig salad and, you know, caramelized fig stuff, desserts. Very hipster, I suppose. And so we're all kind of like, ooh, cool figs. In the ancient world, it wasn't kind of cool. Just everyone had one. Uh, they were very, very common. They're used to describe often just the land of Israel. It was filled. It was described as a land of milk and honey. There was vines with, you know, heaps of grapes, and there were fig trees trees is the description of it. In fact, figs were uh, quite a remarkable plant. Not only did they have uh, great leaves that provided a lot of shade, but you could reasonably expect three harvests of fruit from a fig tree in a standard year. You'd have the early spring fruit, you'd have then uh, fruit that came at the end of autumn, and you also could have a chance of winter figs. Uh, they weren't as big or as delicious as kind of the summer figs, but they were smaller but still sweet enough to be able to eat. So these are fairly uh, kind of substantial plants in the ancient world. It was kind of the equivalent of saying that you have the white picket fence and the dog and the 2.2 kids and all that kind of stuff to kind of say you've made it, you've kind of got the life. Uh, in the prophets, they would describe a time of peace and prosperity and safety by saying that everyone sits under their own vine and under their own fig tree. That was kind of the white picket fence and the dog and two kids thing. That was kind of the life. It was a secure, good life. And at that level, of course, this becomes fairly significant, doesn't it? Because it's not like this farmer is some sort of, I don't know, some sort of bonsai specialist who's dealing with really, really tricky plants. He's not kind of producing the Karinji uh, blossom that only blossoms once every 12 years. He's not dealing with some really intensely difficult tree to get fruit out of. It's a fig tree for crying out loud. And once it comes to maturity, which does take a while, you could reasonably expect up to three harvests. So for this ordinary farmer who's planted a fig tree to come to it after it's reached maturity and for three years spring 
autumn, winter, and repeat three different times. And each time he comes and finds absolutely nothing. And he says, that's it. Cut it down. Cut it down. So this parable emphasizes, I think, for us the significance of fruitfulness, doesn't it? of how important it is that we be those who are actually bearing fruit. But it's really quite significant that the parable chooses, that Jesus chooses to use the image of a tree. You see, the point of the parable is not that the tree should work harder, is it? Like, I'm not much of a horticulturalist, but that's not how trees work, is it? It's not as if the tree were sitting in the soil being stubborn, right? Just kind of going, I don't care what you do, I'm not going to produce any fruit. It's not like it had some sort of deep character flaw. Uh, It's not as if it it was lacking the knowledge on how to bear fruit. As if it's sitting there listening to the conversation going, I I don't know how. Would you show me a book with pictures and I'll I'll try my best. It's not as if there were unclear expectations that the tree was sitting there kind of going, you wanted me to grow fruit. Why didn't you say so? I thought you just wanted shade. I can do fruit. Just give me one more chance. Uh, There's none of that going on. It's a tree for crying out loud. You plant a tree, it comes to maturity, and if it's a fruit tree, it produces fruit. That's the deal. This is what's so significant about the parable. It's actually the focus on the gardener. I mean, first of all, he's actually given it three years. The tree has come to maturity. There have been possibly up to nine harvests, shall we say. Nine points in time when the the guy could have reasonably expected some fruit. He has given it a pretty good innings. He's come back to it again and again and again. On top of that, he seems quite open for the gardener to kind of give it another year. It's quite typical of Luke. We don't know how the, the parable actually finishes. We don't know if the master goes... Nah, cut it down anyways. Uh, But it seems that he's open to the idea that, well, yeah, okay, we'll give it one more year. And think about the sort of care that the gardener wants to give to it. I mean, he said, listen, I'll dig around it and I'll I'll fertilize it. This is a mature tree already. Now, again, not much of a gardener. Plants come to our house to die. But, you know, know, it's like an elephant graveyard in our place. Right, but you know, if you, if you get a, a new tree, apparently you should dig around it and fertilize it. It might last a little bit longer. Nonetheless, you don't do that with mature trees because it's a mature tree. In fact, when I was thinking about it, while there are some trees that don't bear fruit, it's pretty strange, isn't it, to plant a fruit, fruit-bearing tree for it to come to maturity and not bear fruit. Now, that's just really weird. The whole point about trees is that you plant them, and it's not hit and miss. You don't plant 10 trees, 10 apple trees, and hope that one of them produces apples. No, you plant 10 apple trees because you want 10 apple trees, and they'll all produce apples. So it makes an apple tree an apple tree. So here is this guy with an extraordinary fig tree that doesn't produce any figs, right? And he says, yeah, give it one more year. Who knows? Maybe something fundamental will change in his DNA. How's that for hope? And yet, when you consider it, for us, it's much the same. You know, we are still called to bear fruit, aren't we? It's really important that as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, that we bear fruit. But it's actually as much about God as it is about us. And just think for a moment about what God has provided for us in order to enable us to bear fruit. He's given to us his Holy Spirit. 
In the rest of the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit is the, is the characteristics and the, and the qualities uh, that come from a life lived in step with the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, patience, self-control, all of those sorts of things. Well, God has given us His Holy Spirit. As, as Mark referred to earlier when we were celebrating communion, Jesus tells us, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And in case you're trying to figure out what does it mean to remain in Jesus, he tells us that too. He says, obey my commands and love one another. You obey my commands and you love one another and you have remained in me and you will bear much fruit. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're brought into a family and a community of faith. We are surrounded by people who have gifts and abilities and skills that have been given to them by God in order that we might all of us come to maturity in faith. We are surrounded by mentors and coaches and others who can help us and whom we can also help. We've been given his word to to make sure that we know what his will is. We have been given access into the very throne room of God in order that we can ask for whatever it is that we, we, we we require. And because we are not like trees and sometimes we don't bear fruit because we are stubborn and because we are lazy and for all of those sorts of things, our barrenness and our fruitlessness has actually, pardon the pun, been nailed to the tree in Jesus' death and resurrection. God has done all of this to enable us to succeed. He's actually kind of stacked the deck so that we will be able to bear fruit. I uh, coach a soccer team down at uh, George's River and uh, have done so for a while now, and I've done a couple of the SSFA's uh, coaching uh, certifications. I did the grassroots one. I did whatever the next one was. And one of the things that they talked about when they were teaching us in terms of how we can be better coaches was that you wanted to set up drills that give the, the girls, in my case, the best chance to succeed. You want them to have a drill that's actually achievable. So if it's a passing drill or a shooting drill or a defending drill or whatever it is, you want to modify the drill so that they can succeed. You don't want to have some sort of drill that's so impossibly difficult that nobody gets it and they never learn the skills and it's just frustrating for everybody. And so you modify it. So sometimes in a certain drill, you might kind of widen the field or deepen the field so there's more space for them to work the drill out. You might take away a defender and add an attacker. You might give them uh, as many touches as they need uh, to be able to make the pass or whatever it is that they're doing. You set it up so that they can succeed. Sometimes I think we think that God has designed some really, really difficult drills that we never can get and then demands for us to get it right. And he hasn't. He has set the pitch so that we can succeed. He's made it wide and deep. He's taken a defender away. He's added an attacker. He's given us multiple touches, if I can push the analogy to stretching, to breaking point. He has done everything to help us succeed. Anyone who's worked with small children has done this. All right? Because, you know, you're playing with little kids. Unless you've got a horrible competitive issue, you let the kid win. Right? That's kind of how that works. Right? Every parent has done it. Anyone who's babysat, you, know, you play some game, and next thing you know, they're stronger than you are. Right? Uh, they, they can do everything better than you can. And, and why is that the case? Well, you want, them to, you want them to succeed. You want them to feel like they've done something really quite significant. You want them to experience the joy of having scored a goal on dad. 
right? The time comes when that's no longer a game anymore, and it's not about letting them win. It's just about trying not to lose too badly. But, you know, when they're little, that's the deal, isn't it? We've all done that. That's how God is with us. If we want our children to succeed, our nephews and nieces, if we want them to feel good and to realize the potential that they have, how much more so, God? He has done all that he can to allow and enable us to bear fruit, to be successful, to get results. But what exactly are the results that God is after? When we start talking about relationships and results, that seems a little bit weird, doesn't it? If I'm in a relationship with someone, you don't kind of say, well, I'm in a relationship uh, to get some certain results here. And we've kind of set KPIs and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of a weird relationship. It's called work, right? But that's not how it works with our friendships, our relationships. So what is it that God is after? And I suppose in Luke's account, he's after fruit that is in keeping with repentance. This is what John the Baptist says in chapter uh, 3, I believe, of Luke. Uh, He's the opening act for Jesus. Uh, He is a great prophet in his own right. He was come to say to the people of Israel and to the world, shall we say, that God is sending a Savior. Are you ready? And John uh, was met by heaps of people who came from all over the place. And they said, what should we do? And he said, bear fruit keeping in repentance, in keeping with repentance. In other words, bear fruit that matches your repentance. Now, what is repentance? Well, repentance, in in a a kind of a biblical sense, is turning our lives again to the things of God. Uh, And so fruit, in in keeping with repentance, is about the results in our life that shows that we were very serious about turning our life to God. That our values and our priorities and our attitudes and our characteristics and our goals and all of that stuff begins to line up more effectively with the things of God that we have tried to turn ourselves to in our repentance. This is what God desires for us. Because ultimately when we attune ourselves to God, we are attuning ourselves to his kingdom to his values and priorities worked out in the world to restore and renew all things in Jesus Christ. And so the fruit in our lives is always, always about the kingdom of God, not just about a whole list of things that we do better than other people. Whenever we disconnect good things in our lives from the overarching plan of God, we become legalists. Legalists are people who have lists that no longer relate to the things of God, but only relate to other people. And I take my list and I get to see whether I am better than you. How many boxes do you tick? I tick seven. If you tick less than me, you're obviously not nearly as godly as I am. If you tick more than seven, I don't want to talk to you. Right? And we become legalists. We become religious. And it becomes empty. Faith and hope and patience and self-control that just allows me to compare myself to you is not the result that God is after. But patience and love and self-control that allows me to further the things of God in this world, that he's very interested in. That's the kind of fruitfulness that he's actually after. And the question for us is not so much about, are we going to leave here and work harder? Are we going to leave here and kind of go, that's it, I'm going to produce fruit if it kills me. I'm just going to go home and just kind of, you know, focus until some fruit appears. It's not really how it works. Will you accept God's invitation to participate in something where you can actually succeed?
Will you ask the Holy Spirit to complete his work in your life to bring about fruit that lines up with repentance and the kind of shaping of your life to the things of God? Will you take advantage of the relationships that we have with one another, those around us who can coach and mentor and lead and guide and encourage us, even as we do the same for others? Will you take that seriously? Will we be those who seek to obey the commands of Christ and to love one another, that we remain in Him and bear much fruit? Will we learn to love the Word of God that we might know His will? Will we come to Him in prayer with all of our cares and anxieties to ask for the provision of God Himself? Will we take full advantage of the fact that our barrenness and our fruitlessness has been taken care of in the death of Jesus? Will we accept His invitation to bear fruit. You see, just as a tree that's planted, when it comes to maturity, bears fruit, so those who have been planted in Jesus, as they come to maturity, will bear fruit. Will we accept his invitation to do so? So do not leave here feeling like you have to work harder or feeling condemned or feeling like you just have to do more. That misses the point. While there is a certain responsibility on us, God has done so much to enable us to succeed. So let us go in the hopefulness that comes from the provision and generosity of our good, good Father. So I'm going to take a moment to lead us in prayer as Dave and the team come and lead us in response, uh, and as they join me, would you allow me to lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your generosity and goodness to us. We thank you that you have given to us your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have saved us into a community of faith. We thank you that you have told us what it means to remain in Christ. We thank you for your word, for the great privilege of prayer. We thank you for forgiveness. And we come before you and ask that you would complete your work in us. And that just as trees that come to maturity bear fruit, that we would be those who also bear fruit. And that that fruit, those results, would be in keeping with repentance. That as we turn our lives to, to, to line up with the values of the kingdom, that our attitudes and our priorities, our practices the things that are important and the things we do, the things we say and how we say them might fall into line. We pray that we as individuals and as families and as a community of faith might bear fruit, that we might see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.